is the lie you try to stifle. You washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That That's perfect for me. And now she rises. Hi, everybody. Just like so many of us right now, we on the island of discarded women are staying safe by staying home. So instead of a live show this month, we put together this virtual episode. Um, we got really creative with how to record our stories. Uh, a couple of us have modest recording setups at home, but a cell phone in a closet full of clothes worked well. Uh, the inside of a car. That recording actually happened during an Easter Sunday blizzard. So a little fun fact about that. And then there's the omnipresent Zoom. I Zoomed a feature with our special guest and attempted to do a check-in via Zoom with everyone isolating in their bungalows on the island. But the Wi-Fi is spotty. So our island Zoom check-in was not very successful. Day, Day, are you there? I'm here. How about you? Okay, what? I'm sorry, what did I say again? It said what? Hi, Shannon. Hey, I'm here. Mary? Hello. Hello. My name is Miri. For English, say one. Hey, Mary. Hey, guys. Hey, Mo. There's Regina, too. Uh, yeah. She doesn't have her audio on. Regina, turn on your audio. Yeah. Look at you guys. So, what was that? I'm sorry. I didn't understand the question. Where's Nancy? Oh, uh, she sent a thing. Zoom overwhelms me. Taking a nap. Love you all. Zoom and who? Now the fish jumped off the hook. Oh, didn't it, baby? Tell me, baby. Hi. Thanks for calling the Anger Hut. Due to the COVID-19 virus, we are reducing our hours and are working on creating a safe space for you to blow off some steam, but metaphorical steam, because actual steam would be unsafe. Actual punching, where you like punch an actual thing, is no longer allowed, but we do have air punching rooms that we clean extensively between sessions. Our new cycle room is officially closed until further notice. We are offering new cycle scream sessions available via Zoom. And of course, our rage hand washing rooms, where you wash your hands aggressively, are open 24-7. Mostly we at the Anger Hut want to wish you peace, because while this ongoing crisis continues to reveal the beauty in our humanity, there's also a pandemic going on, and science is real! So maybe you should wear a mask, because science is an actual thing! Air punch! Thanks for calling, and leave your message after the beep. Namaste. Early in the quarantine, as my inbox was filling with cancellations of upcoming jobs, and I felt myself staring down the barrel of a global period of darkness and disease, my husband, Quentin, and I started watching Ken Burns' documentary about the Dust Bowl. We noticed it was streaming on Amazon Prime, 
and it seemed like a useful way to put our current crisis in some historical context, to remind ourselves that America has been through tough times before. Immediately, I was struck by the many parallels to today. In the 1920s, millions of acres of American high prairie land were stripped of their native buffalo grass so farmers could plant wheat. They churned up the topsoil and planted an ocean of monoculture to feed the hungry maw of a growing nation. For a while, the money poured in. Then the drought came, as droughts do. In the 1930s, clouds of dust engulfed the plains. The grass that had held the earth in place was long gone. Massive walls of towering dust blackened the sky, killing livestock, choking them to death with dust. The storms kicked up such high levels of static electricity that when people shook hands, the shock could knock them to the ground. This went on for years. And get this, thousands of people were infected with dust pneumonia, or as they called it, the brown plague. People wore face masks and goggles to protect themselves. When supplies ran low, the Red Cross issued a call for 10,000 more masks, but it wasn't nearly enough. Emergency hospital wards were opened in church basements. High school plays were canceled because the gym floors were covered in cots. The footage and images of all this from the 30s are amazing. The Oklahoma panhandle looks like the Sahara. There were literal plagues of locusts. The dust storms could block out the sun for days at a time. The air was unbreathable. This was biblical stuff. Watching it together, Q and I would look at each other and say, Jesus, I guess things really could be worse. So, how did the Dust Bowl end? Eventually, farmers were paid to leave their fields idle. They learned how to manage their land more sustainably. The federal government converted 10 million acres back to grassland. The grass's roots again did what they had always done, held moisture deep in the earth and formed a scaffold for the soil to cling to. I'm thinking now about what our version of that will look like today as we dig out of all this pain, some of it caused by nature and some caused by our own choices, the way we've organized our economy and society, the way we've left whole swaths of our population overworked and exposed, vulnerable and raw. I'm thinking about what it means to recover, to recover, to regain the topsoil that nourishes life and the network of roots that hold it together below the surface. I'm thinking about the healing that's only possible with idleness. I'm reaching for my neighbors, invisibly, underground, hoping we can form a stronger scaffold, hoping we can anchor each other, revive the wisdom of connectedness, feel our way back to balance. Once the dust has settled, once this storm has passed, Dear Diary, March 16th. Today, everything was canceled. Everything. It's the day before St. Patrick's Day, and I think it should be forever remembered as canceling day. Like Boxing Day, only not as much fun and less food. March 18th. One thing that's come from all of this is I have finally made the difficult decision on how to spell the words canceled and canceling. I'm going with the British Standard Version of 2Ls, I feel solid about my decision and my anxiety is lifted as I think about the ease with which I will use these words. For example, all of March, cancelled, double L. So good to have this off my plate. March 20th. There's an obvious letdown after cancelling day. 
what was once a buzz of emails and calls telling me that everything was cancelled, two L's, came the quiet. Although it was nice to hear from Sephora and Claire's Boutique, they are wiping things down and they really seem to care about me. I miss them. March 22nd. I think my dog has the best comedic timing of any pet I have ever owned. Just a natural. March 25th. It's been a while. Everyone is watching Tiger King, and I find myself once again all FOMO. That's fear of missing out. I looked it up. It's like the Game of Thrones all over again. Breaking Bad. Dallas. March 28th. I haven't seen my husband in like four hours. That's weird. I mean, did he leave? I guess I could go downstairs and check, but... That's all the way downstairs. March 31st. I organized my kitchen junk drawer and discovered that it really was just junk. So now it's just a kitchen drawer. Should I still call it the junk drawer and put useful things in it? Sort of a fun, ironic use of storage? Or perhaps it remains empty? Who's to say? April 3rd. It's three quarters of an ounce of bourbon, three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, Lemon juice, orange juice, champagne. I don't have orange juice or lemons. The syrup, bourbon, champagne. I don't have. So I, I have spaghetti. I'll have spaghetti. April. I don't know what day it is or the time. These are constructs I simply don't require anymore. I am free. April 5th. Maybe. I, who's to say? I found some frozen orange juice in the freezer. I am the luckiest person alive. <laughs> oh, my dog is so funny. The Apocalypse Journal by Nancy Bagshaw Reasoner. Monday, March 23rd, 2020. I went to my dentist again today. Three weeks ago, on March 1st, just before all this social distancing started, I had been in for my annual checkup, and he discovered some infection under a molar. So he cleaned up the root and put on a temporary crown. I was to come back today, three weeks later, to have him seat the new porcelain crown. But everything that is deemed non-essential has been closed in Minnesota, so I called him to see if my appointment was still on. He said, well, I'm only handling emergency stuff, but I consider you an emergency because you have such a wide smile. Charlie has been my dentist for 30 years. He's so aptly named. He looks like a grown-up Charlie Brown with a tummy as round as an apple and a moon face and a gap between his front teeth. He's warm and kind and adorable. He was wearing one of his trademark sweatshirts, bright red. These shirts come in every color, even yellow, he said happily as I entered the office. Then he added that he and his wife got takeout from Olive Garden Restaurant last night, and it was great. He was wrapped in a sheet of plastic that had been stapled in the back, and a blue mask covered his grin. His assistant, Anita, looked like an astronaut with a hood over her hair and yards of plastic covering her black sweatshirt and, of course, a mask. She was disinfecting everything continuously. She sprayed and wiped the doorknob I had touched with my gloved hand as soon as I released it. We're taking no chances, Nancy, she said. Charlie kept dropping things. God, he said, I'm all nerves. 
I said, you want to do this another day? Oh, no, Nan, no. He always calls me Nan. I don't want to risk you getting an infection in the gum and me maybe dying. And then, geez, a lot of dentists won't even see anyone but their own patients right now. So, boy, you'd be in trouble. I'd never forgive myself. I climbed into the chair and Charlie gave me a shot of Novocaine and started wiggling the temp crown to get it to release. Then the mailman came in, some youngish guy named Mark, a real dude. He apparently regards Charlie and Anita as confidants, so he blathered on about how his girlfriend's law office, where she's a paralegal, had to shut down because someone tested positive for COVID, and now maybe she has it? Anyway, she says she doesn't want to hang out with Mark anymore, for at least a while. Mark goes on and on, says that he thinks she's lying, though, that she just wants to break up with him, and she's using the pandemic as an excuse. By this time, Mark was in the exam room with Charlie and me. He leaned against the door frame and popped a chiclet in his mouth. So what do you guys think, he said. Charlie looked at him. Well, you and your girlfriend have broken up before, you know, twice in just the last six months, wasn't it? Yeah says Mark warily. Charlie continues, well, I'm just saying it, it might be a sign. Of what, says Mark, the mailman? That you should just move on, says Anita. Mark looks at me and says, wow. I shrug, I, I can't talk because Charlie's hand is in my mouth. Mark leaves and Anita goes into overdrive, spraying the waiting room, the doorknobs, the reception desk, the ceiling, and the air, and all the time mumbling, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. When my tooth was done, Charlie said what he always says, there you are, you're looking good, Nan. There was some discussion of my new insurance and how he accidentally billed my old insurance, which rejected it, but he said, oh, let's not worry about payment now. We'll have time later. We're going to get through this, you know. Charlie and Anita walked me to the door. Then I shared a joke I had heard the day before. You know why there's such a shortage of toilet paper? Because every time one person coughs, a thousand people shit. <laughs> Charlie and Anita laughed explosively. Then Charlie had a coughing fit. Anita screamed, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, Charlie, cough in your armpit. And she sprayed everything again as I left. But as I was backing out the door, I, I, I told them... I hold them close in my daily meditations every day. And then I send them my wishes that karma will protect them, keep them safe all their lives. And, and mainly, thank you. Thank you, Charlie and Anita, for being so brave. And I blew them a kiss. I could hear Anita spraying as I walked back to my car. Breathe in, breathe out, that's what I'm told life is about. Wake up, go to sleep, nothing else in between. In my Shut behind the door
But I'm one step closer every day Till I finally see your face I long for your embrace It keeps me whole in your mind Stepping stone of grace I'll need it heaven's gate For it's the only way I'm holding on to faith If there's love you can find Then send it out like Valentine's Cause the world sure could use A little more love, a little more you Is it I fall The last time that I flew I can't recall But I'm one step Closer every day Till I finally See your face I long for your Embrace It keeps me holding your mind Stepping stone of grace I'll need for heaven's gate For it's the only way I'm holding on to I'm faith. one step closer every day Till I finally see your face I long for your embrace It keeps me whole in your mind Stepping stone of grace I'll need in heaven's gate For it's the only way Oh, I'm one step closer every day Till I finally see your face I long for your embrace It keeps me whole in your mind Stepping stone of grace I'll need it heaven's gate For it's the only way Holding on to faith Okay, so what if the first people to get sickened by the virus weren't elderly people in a nursing home in Washington State? What if they were young people? Like, 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 what if it was a school full of kids? Would we have paid attention more from the beginning? Or, or uh, what if it was a sports team? Like a, like a championship sports team. I mean, not, not a women's team, like a, like a real team, like a, the Cowboys or the Patriots. Would, would we have reacted faster, do you think? Or what if the first people to get sick were like from a church, like from a, a big evangelical church? I mean, they say they're waiting for Jesus to come take them home, and the virus could certainly do that. Yeah, never mind. Um, okay, what if the first infected people were like Navy SEALs or no? You know, there was that big family gathering in New Jersey. Many got sick. Four died. I mean, the matriarch was so sick before she died, she wasn't even aware that two of her children had died first. Really sad story. And a cautionary tale about large gatherings, even with family members. But ultimately, I think they were the main ones who cared about that. Okay, a large company with lots of employees falling ill. You know, that may have spurred faster action. 
No. The, the large outbreaks in the meatpacking plants aren't even mandating them to shut down to save their workers. So, yeah, that wouldn't have mattered. And, you know, those employees are mainly brown people, so they don't count. Okay, so what if the first person to get sick from this virus was you? I mean, other leaders have gotten sick. I mean, Boris Johnson got really sick. And Prince Charles, he tested positive. I mean, the virus isn't picky, right? So, yeah, what if you were the very first person in the United States to get this virus really bad? I mean, I'm sure you'd think it was a cold, you know, initially, or maybe maybe the flu. I mean, it couldn't be that Chinese thing. I mean, you're not Chinese. But then you start having a cough, which gets worse. But you're strong. I mean, you can handle coughs better than most. And actually, you can't breathe very well. But that's just because you're busy. You know, busy people sometimes can't breathe. Many people have told you that. So, you know, maybe you just need to take a walk, you know, around a golf course. But not today. Because you really don't feel well, and it is kind of hard to breathe, and your cough is getting worse. (laughs) Oh, great. So now they want you to go to the ER, but you're not going to the ER. Only weak people go to an ER. I mean, you like people who don't have to go to the ER. But okay, okay, okay. To humor them, you go. Plus, mm, you do feel kind of crappy. Okay, at the ER, they tell you you're not getting enough oxygen, which you question. Because you have the best oxygen of anyone. I mean, everyone tells you that. But your levels are too low, they say. So they send you to the ICU. (laughs) And you tell them, you know what? I was totally fine two days ago. But your lungs are filling up, which is why you're gasping for air. So they tell you they have to intubate you and put you on a ventilator. (laughs) Which you are like, no way. That's for other people, not you. People like you breathe on their own. But actually, you can't. So you say, fine, 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 just so they'll stop talking about it. But the intubating process is super uncomfortable. So they sedate you. They have to. But you won't be totally out. It'd just be more like asleep. So after the tube goes in, well, you feel like you're drowning. So you try to pull the tube out. Everyone tries to pull the tube out. So they have to tie your hands down. They have to tie everyone's hands down. And though you can't speak, the terror in your eyes signals your fear to the nurses and the doctors. But there is nothing they can do about that now because they have patients lined up and down the hallways and refrigerator trucks parked outside. And, you know, everyone had terror in their eyes in Wuhan and Italy, too. But we don't know about that because, you know, we have the best information of everybody and we don't need anything from anybody else. Okay, here's the deal. You do actually have that Chinese thing, but no one tells you that because they know you don't want to hear it. But because you do, you're just way too contagious to have anyone in the room with you. Um, I mean, there was a guard outside your door for a while, but now hmm, he's not feeling so hot. So they sent him home for 14 days. So you lie there alone in a room on a ventilator. A FaceTime meeting is discussed, but the hair is not good. So that's dismissed. And multiple times a day, a nurse wearing a homemade cloth mask over her soiled N95 and a pair of ski goggles and a garbage bag over her scrubs with a Major League Baseball rain poncho over all that, she comes in and takes your vitals and checks your oxygen levels and Sometimes she talks to you, and sometimes she sings a little. It really bothers her that you have to lie there all alone, without family, without 
anyone. So she sits and she holds your hand for a while when she can. But she has other patients. The hospital is overwhelmed. So she tells you she'll see you in a little bit and she leaves. And again, you're all alone on a ventilator in the ICU, very sick and very contagious. People are praying for you. Lots of people are praying for you, which is terrific. Prayers can definitely help. But power can't, and money can't, and ego can't, and your name on a check can't, and sarcasm definitely can't. Instead of a bunch of old people in a nursing home, what if the very first person in our country to get really sick from this virus was you? sir. I could show the world how to smile. I could be glad all day. I could start my life all new On April 1st, this adorable singer died of the coronavirus in a care facility in Little Rock, Arkansas. She was the second in her nursing home to die from the virus and the 11th in the state. Sadly, there have been many more since. We hear the daily number count of the deceased, but what we don't hear often enough is who are these sweet souls who represent those numbers? So let me introduce you to Fran Jansen. She grew up as Frances Ann Bovick in Omaha, Nebraska. While singing for a local radio station, she was discovered by the popular big band leader, Frankie Carl. She toured the country with his band, which eventually led to her signing a contract with 20th Century Fox Records in 1949 and moving to Hollywood. I had a delightful conversation with Fran's son, Drew, about his mom. Drew's an old friend and a very, very gifted musician and lyricist. But before our conversation, here is Fran in 1949, going by her stage name, Fran Barkley, being interviewed by a Hollywood reporter. Fran Barkley. Come on in, Fran, and say hello. Hello, everybody. I understand you're quite new to California, Miss Barkley. What state has the honor and pleasure of calling you a native daughter? <laughs> oh, well, I call Omaha, Nebraska my home, but... You're right about my being a newcomer to California. I've been here just a little over a year now. Are you getting used to the climate? Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> you better say that. <laughs> I'm so. Well, tell me, were your talents confined to Omaha before you came out here to California? Well, for the first few years of my singing career, they were. You see, I have an older brother and sister who sing, too. And the three of us used to do quite a bit of work in and around Omaha. Then, of course, the war came along, yeah. and my brother and sister both joined the service. Bless their baby sister all alone. You're the baby sister. I'm the baby right. sister. <laughs> well, see, then there was nothing else for me to do but sing solo from then on. Well, look, Fran, would you give us, uh, give the folks a little bit of your background as a singer? Well, I won't go all the way back because I really started singing in public when I was nine. Mm, for Lincoln, huh? <laughs> no, Washington. <laughs> Most of my work, though, has been in the Midwest. That is, up until the last two years. I was a band vocalist and had my own show over the mutual broadcasting system, made quite a few appearances on ABC and NBC, 
And I've been doing quite a bit of television, too. What band did you sing with mostly, Fran? Ah, who else? Frankie Carl, my favorite. See, the band traveled all the way from New York to California, playing every big and little city along the way. Mm-hmm. The tour was wonderful. Sounds like it. Oh, gosh, yes. But, see, it gets awfully tiring after so long, you know, so now I just want to stay put. Spent too much time on the buses, huh? <laughs> yeah, on those greyhounds. Yeah, well, I can't blame you a bit, Fran. Now, tell me. Uh, did you come directly from Frankie Carl's band to 20th Century Records? No, I came by way of CVS. <laughs> what is it, a pedigree? <laughs> no. Where have you been appearing in California, Fran? Oh, gee, there were a lot of them. I can't remember all of the places, but well, maybe I shouldn't say this. It sounds like a commercial, but I remember my very favorite spot. It was the beautiful Chi-Chi Club in Palm Springs. That's one of my favorites, too, Fran. Oh, <laughs> I love it. It was so wonderful, but the only bad part about a spot like that is a girl can get awfully lazy just getting brown in the sun all day long and singing all night long. Yeah, I imagine so, but judging from the way you sing, Fran, you won't have a chance to get lazy now that you've signed with 20th Century Records. I think they're going to keep you pretty busy. <laughs> I hope so. I could be a queen, dear, and Through the magic of Zoom, Fran's son Drew, armed with a glass of seltzer water on ice and an occasional text from his sister, shared stories about his mom. She was the youngest of three children, uh, Depression-era kids, and so Mom uh, started off in radio in the Omaha area, working at two stations, KBON and uh, KFAB, of all things, which are her, were her initials. She ended up working a little bit of everything, some secretarial work, some on-air talent, some, uh, I'm sure she probably did commercials, you know, just sure. like people did back in the day, a little yeah. bit of everything. Yeah, so that's yeah, how yeah. she got her start, yeah, was, was in that, and then... Uh, yeah, st- started it, seeing the bands in the uh, in the in the yeah. area. So Frankie Carl. Right. Yeah. For those who they, don't know, Frankie Carl. Yeah. Uh, people, the name isn't quite as big these days as Glenn Miller, but back in the day, he he was he was up there. He was he was. He an was the thing. He hears your mom singing. His mom told us uh, she's at home. Uh, yeah. She's probably twenty ish, yeah. uh, having dinner with her family, and the phone rings, and uh, it's Frankie Carl. <laughs> Hello, 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 I've got Frankie Carl on the phone. It's Fran Bovic there, please. Place in the person for Fran Bovic. Yes. The problem it's, was. I, it's uh, Mr. Frankie Carl's looking for Fran Bovic. <laughs> is she there? And just because this is the way her life pretty much always ran, like a cheesy MGM musical, she auditioned for Frankie Carl over the phone, and he said, uh, get on a train and meet us in Buffalo on Saturday. So oh she my gosh. Went, went back to dinner and said, I just auditioned for Frankie Carl, one of the biggest band leaders in the country right now. And I'm joining his band on the road in Buffalo, New York next week. It's like a scene out of a movie. Then she gets this uh, contract uh, to yeah, move she, to Hollywood, she, right? She, she ended up in Hollywood and did a couple of things. She worked as, uh, in addition to continuing singing, uh, on the radio, uh, she also got a part-time secretarial work with uh, a couple of uh, people you may recognize, Ed, Ed Wynn. Oh, Ed Wynn, yes, okay, sure, and, sure, of course. Uh, also, um, Alan Lane, who was the lead, he was he was Wilbur, the owner of Mr. Ed. And <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what Alan Lane was doing back then, apparently, yeah, I don't know if it was a radio show or a television show, but so mom did secretarial work as well as working as a demo vocalist Okay. And also doing some radio in, in, in the Los Angeles area from time to time. So she did a little bit of everything and kept her toe in music and ended up signing a contract with 20th Century Fox Records, which yeah. you were heard about on that interview. It was kind of a stable of people like they used to do in the old movie studios where they would have young people whom they would groom. And if they broke out and became stars on their own, fine. But in the meantime, they also could help you know, record new songs and then see if Dinah Shore wanted to record it. Or 
or you know who would have been the stars at that point this is 1949 well it would have been the dinosaurs it would have would have been, been uh, uh doris peggy, day would it be doris, doris day, day peggy yeah lee. peggy lee uh, so yeah, yeah. So th this was an exciting time to be a, a, a female vocalist because they were start, sort of starting to carve out their own niches away from you know having a, a boss man <laughs> you know who knows maybe one of those songs your mom demoed and then Peggy yeah. Lee or Doris Day, get me that song. I want yeah. that song, you know, but, which is another scene out of the movie yeah, the of movie Your Mom's life. life. And the name Fran Barkley, where did that come from? Mom's name growing up was Bovik. B-O-V as in victory, I-C-K, uh, which was not actually her father's name. Oh. Bovik is an Americanization of Bordovicus, Lithuanian. But that was not my grandfather's name. He was actually Matthew Levichus, which in Lithuanian, is, it means Matthewson. I mean, you know a Lithuanian name if it sounds like a skin rash. It's probably <laughs> Gerolitis, Vetus Gerolitis. I mean, that sounds like something hydrocortisone cream can treat. But so, so mom's family name was Bovik, which was an Americanization of Bordovicus, but my grandfather was actually uh, Julius Maria Matthew Levichus, of Vilnius, Lithuania. At 12 years old, he moved from Lithuania to the United States. And he had a cousin in the States already named Borovikas. And okay. so he posed as his cousin's brother and said, my name is Julius Borovikas. And then he Americanized that to Bovik. So he was he was an illegal. My grandpa Bovik was an illegal. So the yeah. family name was Bovik, but the powers that, that were at the time in Hollywood decided that Bovik wasn't the prettiest name. And it's, it's not. <laughs> but... Uh, so she wanted to keep yeah. the initial the same. So as she told me, she picked up the Los Angeles phone book and flipped to the B's. Oh, and funny. Saw Barclay, B A R C L A Y. And so that, that was her stage name. I love having a mom who had a stage name. So Fran is in Hollywood living the dream, but her parents are worried about their little girl all alone in the big city. Grandma and Grandpa Bovik strongly recommended that mom take some time off, about a month, and go visit her sister, Lydia who was in the military. Uh, she and her husband, Daryl, were stationed at the time at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And uh, mom wanted to continue working, so she, uh, through her connections working in radio in Los Angeles, uh, was able to contact a station out in North Carolina. It was either in Wilmington or Wrightsville Beach, close by to Camp Lejeune. So mom went out there uh -huh. and worked uh, part-time for this radio station, and one of her duties was touring the base and interviewing soldiers who were recuperating or whatever. And, and here comes yeah. the next scene in the Hollywood movie musical of my yeah. mom's life. Uh, she walks by with her entourage, walks by this office of this young Marine doctor who was a Navy doctor who was stationed on this Marine base. And uh, this young doctor beckons his assistant, Mabel, because back then everybody's secretary assistant was named Mabel. Of course. Mabel, uh, Mabel arranged for dad to meet mom, and uh, he also got word that mom was staying on base in the guest room of, I guess, his commanding officer, somebody who was, you know, militarily over my father in, in, in command. In, in charge, yeah. In charge of dad. So uh, dad apparently went that night to uh, his commanding officer's home on base and threw pebbles at what he thought was the window of the guest room. Uh-oh. Y'all uh -oh. can find the rest of this scene. Mom was absolutely charmed that this young <laughs> Navy doctor would do this. And yeah. uh, so she agreed to go out on a date with him on one stipulation that they would stop by the Catholic Church on base and spend a few moments in prayer. What, what I love is that uh, the first time they went to the chapel together, uh, the organist was working on tuning the organ. There was no service going on at the time, but he was working on tuning the organ. And 
often I've, I've learned this to be the case with piano and organ tuners is that they have a, a favorite song that they'd like to use to once they've done it to just sort yeah, of- Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Apparently this organist, his, his song to test his, his handicraft was uh, Old Black Joe, a song oh, that is not yeah. performed very much anymore Wait. without a whole lot of careful setup what? and context. Yeah. I'm sorry, what? So that, 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 yeah. that was their official song. And then some years later, the, uh, the, they, they decided that maybe uh, uh, Louis Armstrong's recording of A Kiss to Build a Dream On might be a little more perfect. That became their song, eventually. They fell in love the young singer and the Navy doctor. They were engaged six weeks later, and on September 6, 1952, nine months after first meeting, they were married with a full military wedding, white dress uniform, swords, and all. Well, it was great because the day they got married, a hurricane was threatening Camp, you know, Camp Lejeune is, is, is very close yeah. to the coast, and there was a hurricane threatening, September's hurricane season. And mom insisted they had already boarded up the chapel with the the, the board. You know, mom oh, insisted right. that, that they take the boards off, so oh. the pictures were taken. <laughs> there would not be boards over the window. So even then, Francis Anne Elizabeth Bovic Barkley Bodemikas Matthewlevitus <laughs> Jansen was getting her away. <laughs> Eventually, Fran Jansen became a mother of five. I asked Drew if she ever expressed any regrets about walking away from Hollywood to raise a family. I never heard any sense of regret. And no. you know, as a kid, especially, I'm going to step out on a limb here and say, especially as a gay kid who was sort of fascinated by, as, as most gay boys are, by, you know, the, just that whole show business, glitzy, glamorous nightclub, Ricky Ricardo. Sure. You know, so that's kind of when I would listen to some of these recordings of my mom as a kid, I just sort of assumed that that was her life. I, I, I didn't know she was living in probably a 400 square foot apartment and, you know, barely getting by. All I knew was that she was, you know, on stage, she sang at the Hollywood Bowl, you know. Yeah. So I, I just imagined that she had this really glitzy, glamorous life. And right. first of all, she leveled with me. She said, no, I mean, that was the image. But I mean, she said the traveling, you know, on a train, it, yeah. it wasn't that glamorous right. you know it really wasn't it's yeah we romanticize that sort of thing sure. she, she said the best part was the music where she's getting to make good music but yeah. that never went away i mean you know she didn't need that to be her career she continued to make music she was fortunate in that her life situation was such that she didn't have to generate income she yeah. her spouse generated the income she yeah. very much was happy uh you know being a she she was a very traditional woman in very many respects, although she was also a groundbreaker in so many respects too. She just sort of never felt like, I don't think she ever felt like she made, had to make that choice to be yeah. honest. Yeah. I think she just sort of felt like, this is what I did when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. And, now I can just do that to do that for the, the sheer joy, whether it's singing in the choir at church or, you know, at a convention or just at a family, you know, casual family gathering that happened right. all the time. We made the Brady Bunch look like the Manson family. <laughs> Seriously. Like, <laughs> the Manson family. <laughs> she had this voice. And uh, when she passed, I heard from so many people from our parish who that would be the thing they would focus on. Yeah. And she loved singing in church. Oh, she loved singing the old hymns. I mean, yeah. I, I played organ. I was the organist for my in grade school I played for a lot of the school masses and mom would attend a lot of those and I would I would sneak in what I knew were her favorites for a little 
offertory. A little uh, old black Joe too. No, <laughs> I never no. played old black Joe, but I did accidentally play a Chopin nocturne once at mass. But <laughs> you'll never speak of that again. I just thought it was a lovely piece, and Dad said, "Did you intend to play Chopin?" As I just thought it was pretty. In Fran's final years, Alzheimer's became a big challenge. Fortunately, if there can be a fortunately, and actually there is a fortunately that can be found even in the tragedy of Alzheimer's. Yeah. In mom's case, it built a beautiful world in her head. Oh. To her last day, she lived somewhere that was very happy, almost without fail to the very last conversation I remember having with her. It was always happy. What a gift. What a gift. Yes. Not just to her, but to us. I know. Because if... You know, we couldn't, we couldn't be with her in her last hours. Right, right. But the comfort comes in knowing that she was not aware of the seriousness of what was going on around her. Interesting. And we're so grateful for that because yeah. had she had, you know, her full wits about her, she would have known. She was a she was a wife of a physician. She yeah. knew medical stuff. She knew about contagion, and but she didn't. Yeah, she, she did. Probably having lunch with her sister Lydia when she passed. Yeah. That's yeah. what I choose to believe. Just to just to sort of clarify a little bit of that. So she uh, uh, she ended up in Briarwood. Right. Briarwood uh, was generally is generally considered. I want to make sure because you know we were so concerned about even mentioning that she was at Briarwood in the obituary. The oh. concern was that we would come off as somehow blaming oh, this disability. Oh, oh, and sure. my my brilliant little sister worded it in such a way that we we ended, you know, we we put Briarwood in there, but it, we took great care to acknowledge yeah. that we think these people who work there are angels and heroes. And they right. are. This is the finest facility in the state of Arkansas. And my right. father was successful enough that we could afford to have the best for mom. Yeah. The best for mom COVID didn't care. Right. It was like Briarwood. I think there was another uh, facility elsewhere in Arkansas that had the first, what they would consider outbreak, but Briarwood was the first in Little Rock, and it was the one that just sort of exploded. They went something like from 2 to 48 overnight, wow. and mom initially tested negative. Jim and I were, were visiting Minneapolis in February and the first part of March, and we got home late on March 10th. We got in to see mom on the 11th. That's the last time I saw her. Uh -huh. The 12th is when everything went on lockdown. Yeah. But brother Mark, oldest, the oldest of the five siblings, uh, is, is, is a brilliant physician, as was our father. And he prepared us. He said, there's a very good chance she will convert she, from, from negative to positive. And when she does, given her health history, given her age, given all this, this will probably be her final chapter. And so we were as prepared as we could be for that. And, and in right. her case, it was... It was mercifully quick. Yeah. Uh, from positive diagnosis to death was less less than a week. I think it, it was a, it was a few days. Few days. So, wow. Yeah. My heart goes out to you to, to mm. all you guys in the family that you weren't able to to be with her. Right. Uh, to you know to hold a vigil or whatever mm -hmm. that we yeah. do with our loved ones as there is uh, transitioning. That was rough. Yeah. yeah. I'm very sorry yeah. about well, that. Th thank you. I appreciate that. The the, the yeah. funeral was strange of course everybody's going to have the same story to tell over and over again about you know there are five of us four spouses and daughter so there were 10 of us and the priest at, yeah. at the funeral 
and we even then we were separated. scattered, yeah. separated in the chapel. Yeah, and uh, we are going to have a service later on when the sure. when, when the threat has passed or yeah. has, you know, has been mitigated to a certain extent. But uh, yeah, it's 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 very surreal. It's yeah. very surreal. But and Sue, I, I I just want to thank you for letting me share Mom's story. Oh, I mean, I, I mean we're, we're we're sad, but I mean the yeah. the example she set, not just yeah. as a mother, yeah. but as a performer, as yeah. a musician. I mean, mm-hmm. I have taken so many of those lessons that I didn't know I was learning. It's just mm-hmm. okay. Here's good music. We're gonna do a lot of it in our family while you're growing up, and then you're gonna be able to take it out into the world and make your own hope good music and so that's the mom I got yeah I'm, I'm pretty happy about that Fran recorded again in 1997 this time with her son drew at the piano I had just uh, I had just bought a new car we had just opened how to talk Minnesota in the musical and okay. I had a little mad money to, to play with and so I bought a new 1997 Subaru Outback Sport and a hard drive digital cassette recording deck oh, funny. and brought it home with me and yeah. uh, one afternoon, mom was making dinner, and I decided I wanted to get a few songs down. So I, I just, it was just me playing piano and mom singing. And yeah. uh, so it was just four or five songs that I recorded with mom one afternoon back in 1997. And even then, I knew that I was going to be happy that I had these recordings. Frances Ann Bovick Jansen, known during her Hollywood years as Fran Barkley, died of COVID-19 on April 1st, 2020. She was 94 years old. In Nicholas Kristof's terrific article profiling the heroic work being done at two hospitals in the Bronx, he includes an email sent to young doctors by Dr. Michael Jones, who runs the physician resident program for the emergency departments at both hospitals. The email reads, take a few minutes, if you can, to talk about patients' families, their lives, their dreams. Ask if there is a loved one you can call. And lastly, two very different things. Hold your patient's hand for a minute as they near death or pass and ask your entire team to stop for five or 10 seconds. Bow your heads, state the patient's name and ask for silence. Blanche Freckman, Nick Webster, Skylar Herbert, Rana Zoe Munchen, Ron Flanagan, Fran Jensen. Dr. Jones continues, this helps us retain our humanity in times of such crisis and gives our patients' families some solace that they were treated with dignity.
Thank you, thank you to Drew Jansen for bringing his delightful mother Fran to life so beautifully. And thank you to our extremely flexible guest, Shannon Custer, Mo Perry, Nancy Bagshaw-Reasoner, Regina Williams, Day Yang, and Sylvia Pontaza. And thank you to Zippy Lasky for that gorgeous tune. This show was written by Shannon, Mo, Nancy, Sue, and Zippy. And thanks also to our male ally, Tony Axtell, for his ongoing engineering assistance. And thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Flip'em the Bird. When you simply just don't have the words. Let your gloves say it for you. Shop their fingerless gloves, ball caps, and t-shirts at flipthemthebird.com. We so hope to be able to bring you another live episode very soon. We miss our audiences and pray you're all staying safe. In the meantime, you can listen. So stay tuned for our next virtual episode of Island of Discarded Women. Thank you, everyone. I'm Sue Scott. Holding on to faith